I want to begin today by simply wishing all of our mothers a happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Thank you for what you do for our families. Thank you for what you do to the kingdom of God. I hope that if your mother is where you can go and visit her, that you'll do that. Or if not, you'll call her up and tell her how much you love her and how much she means to you. And if you're like me in June, you know, our mothers have already gone to be with the Lord. And I hope that you'll have just wonderful memories of who your mother was and, and what she's done for you. And so God bless you today if you're a mother. Happy Mother's Day. Our text today and his story, subtitled, This Is My Story, comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's a text that plays a pivotal role in both the story of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Those words may sound familiar to you. And of course, in one sense, they're very specific as to who the writer is speaking of. But they also look down the history of time toward the coming of the Messiah. And so we're going to be looking at who was it? to whom these words were spoken, and why does it play such an important role in the Bible? The person who received these words were, was none other than David. David, of course, is one of the most important characters of the Old Testament. In fact, more is written about David than any other character, more than Abraham, more than Joseph, more than Daniel, in fact, there's 66 chapters devoted of the Old Testament just to David, besides all of the Psalms that he was the author of. Now, why is David so important? To understand that, you simply have to turn to the opening pages of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Very first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, at first, that seems a little out of order. Shouldn't Abraham come first? Because he comes first in the Old Testament. But one of the things you'll quickly find in reading through, say, the Gospel of Matthew is the role that David plays in the story of the New Testament. In fact, the phrase, son of David, becomes a synonym for the name of Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, there are two men who are blind and they're following Jesus. And notice what they say, have mercy on us, son of David. They didn't call him Jesus. They called him by a very, very important name, son of David, which simply means Messiah. Jesus would go up into the northern part of Galilee, into Gentile territory. And you would have a Canaanite woman who would hear that he was there. And she would come up to him, crying out just like the blind man did. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Son of David. And then as you continue to go through the Gospel of Matthew, you would have what we call the triumphant entry. It's, it's, it's Palm Sunday. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna 
the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And the people in Jerusalem knew exactly what they were saying. When they called Jesus the son of David, they were proclaiming him to be the long-awaited Messiah. In fact, one of the most important questions that you have in either of the four Gospels is this one. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? And so this passage points us to the future in a very powerful way. Now, to understand why this verse is important, we have to kind of go back a chapter before it. Well, actually, at the opening of chapter 7. David is now in his 60s. So much of what we know about David is past. And notice what the text says. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Nathan was a very important character in the story of David. He's the one, for instance, who confronted David after his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan was the one who spoke truthfully to him. And so David goes to Nathan and, and basically says, I have a dream. Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. David had conquered Jerusalem. He had made it his capital. But after he had built his own palace there and, and peace had finally come to the nation of Israel, David, as you know, 60-something-year-old man, is looking at all that he had accomplished and realized, here I am living in a palace of cedar in the Ark of the Covenant. The sign of the presence of God is still in the tabernacle. It's in a tent had been ever since the time of Moses, now for several hundred years. And David had a dream, a dream of building a temple for his God, the greatest temple that would ever be built. Nathan at first says, go ahead with your dream. But then God comes to Nathan and says, it's not for David to do. David has shed too much blood. He's been a warrior. His son will do it. And so God speaks to David and says, listen, he, he's speaking there of Solomon. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, why the specific context is pointing to Solomon? We all know that by the time we get to the New Testament and the baptism of Jesus, God speaks from heaven and declares that Jesus is his son, with whom he's well pleased. And so much of that goes back to this passage, as well as to Psalm 2, where God declared David to be his son, and that God would be, in fact, his father. You go to verse 16, and you have one of the most important passages again in the Old Testament, as he repeats what he says in verse 13. Your house... Your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, they would, there would come a descendant of David who would finally ascend to his throne and his kingdom would know no end. You know, there are several covenants that you find in the Old Testament. 
Among the covenants, of course, is the Mosaic Covenant. We call that the Old Testament. But in Genesis chapter 12, in a passage we memorized two or three months ago, you have the promise that God makes to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We call that the Abrahamic Covenant. This is another covenant called the Davidic Covenant. And it's where God promised to David, listen, because of who you are, one of your descendants will sit on my throne forever. And it causes us to pause and ask why. Why would God make such a promise to this man? And that story is an amazing story. We have to go back earlier in the book of Samuel. You know, Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. After wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, they came to the edge of the Jordan River. Joshua took over. They entered the land. They conquered it. And following the lifetime of Joshua was a period called the period of the judges. Men, women who would lead Israel, especially in military conquest. Now, they were not kings. They played a very different role. And the last of the judges was a man by the name of Samuel. And so 1 Samuel chapter 8 tells us that when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges after him. But there was a problem. Notice what verse 3 says, But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, accepted bribes, and perverted justice. And so the elders of Israel came to Samuel uh, at Ramah, and they said to him, you're old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Everybody knew it. Even Samuel knew it. And so they said, now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. Samuel was heartbroken. And so God appeared to Samuel and said to him, you know, when they said, give us a king to lead us, he's heartbroken. He prayed to the Lord, and the Lord responded by saying, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. Now, God always intended for Israel to have a king. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis and see his prediction there. But Israel wanted a king before God was prepared to give her one. And so God simply told Samuel, Give them what they want. And so in 1 Samuel 9, you have the story of Israel's first king. Notice how he's described. Kish had a son named Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. To say that Saul stood out in the crowd was an understatement. I mean, here's a man that, I mean, he could appear in any movie in Hollywood. He was so handsome. But more than that, he was a head taller than anyone else in the land. And let me tell you, having lived a life being short, I can tell you how much I admire those people who just kind of, you know, are so much larger than life. And that's what Saul was. But that's not all the story. As Samuel finally anoints him to be the first king of Israel, you have a very interesting statement made in 1 Samuel 10, 9. This is from the New Living Translation. 
As Saul turned and started to leave after his being anointed by Samuel, the text says that God gave him a new heart. Now, can I pause just for a moment and ask a question? Why? Why was it necessary for God to give Saul a new heart? What was wrong with the heart that he had? And what's interesting is, is that the story of Saul very quickly shows that Saul, while God started him with a new heart, quickly reverted back to the old heart that he had. You go from chapter 10 to chapter 13, and Saul does something that is so wrong. They're going into battle against the Philistines. Samuel has told him, you wait until I get there and I offer sacrifices to God before you go into battle. Samuel was late in coming. And so Saul went ahead and offered the sacrifices himself, even though he was not from the proper tribe. And so when Samuel gets there, he says to him, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. And then you have one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Do you notice the difference I mean, Saul's heart had to be changed. But here is Samuel telling him, God has sought out someone, a man, whose heart is after his heart. In other words, it's like his heart. I love the contrast that's made between the first and second king of Israel. On the left, you see what is said of Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. And then the second king, a man after God's own heart. And there's a difference to be made out of those two. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Why would God pick someone after his own heart, and, and who would that person be? Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is out of the Passion Translation. I really like the way it's translated. Here's what Paul said. God chose the lowly, the laughable in the world's eyes, nobodies, so that he would shame the somebodies. And in so many ways, that's exactly the story that takes place here in, in the book of, of 1 and 2 Samuel. I mean, Saul, handsome, Paul, I mean, this, this guy who had a commanding present, and then the one who would replace him. Let's look at what this nobody was like. In 1 Samuel 16, you have Samuel being told to go and anoint the second king of Israel. And so he says to, God does to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I rejected him as king over Israel? And so he says, fill your horn with oil because he would anoint this second king with that oil. And be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And so Samuel makes the journey to Bethlehem down in Judea. 
And when he gets there, he consecrates Jesse and his sons and invites them to a dinner. There's going to be a sacrifice and a fellowship meal that's there. And when all the sons showed up, I want you to notice what the text says. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Eliab's the firstborn. He's the oldest of Jesse's boys. And, and when he showed up and Samuel saw him, I know his mind probably went back to the first time he saw Saul. I mean, here's, here's this son. He's good looking. He's strong. I mean, surely this is the one that the Lord has chosen. But notice what God said to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Evidently, he was a tall son. Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. One by one, the sons of Jesse's appeared before Samuel. And one by one, the Lord said, not this one. Seven sons had passed before Samuel, and, and there was no one else present. And so Samuel turns to Jesse, and he says, Are these all the sons you have? And this is where the nobody shows up. They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't even mention his name? He's the young teenager out in the field. And of course, Samuel sends for him and immediately anoints him as the future king of Israel. Now, the text says that when he came in, he was ruddy. The word ruddy there simply means that he was tan. He'd been out under the sun a lot as a shepherd boy. But the text says he had beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. It's not that God's against people that look good. But there was something else special about him. And that was his heart. Anoint him. Arise, anoint him. For this is he. The one that God had told Samuel about. And so here's the question that you have to ask. What was it about David? that made him a person after God's own heart? You know, that's an important question to ask. I don't know about you, but I don't know of any greater compliment than being described as someone who has the heart of God. And, and I hope that that's your desire. I know it's my desire. And so let, let's pause for just a few minutes. And let's ask the question, what were the characteristics of David that made him a man after God's own heart? You know, there's so many characteristics of David. I mean, we could literally study David's life for weeks, if not months. And yet, when you start to boil them down, there are certain ones that just kind of float to the top. The first one is this. David was an incredible man of faith. You know, when he was just a teenager, I mean, he goes off to, to visit the battlefield one day. Saul is taking the Israelites. They're fighting the Philistines. They line up for battle when a, a Philistine who is a giant comes out. His name is Goliath. And Goliath would come out every day with basically a challenge. You send your best fighter. He and I will fight. If he beats me, we'll be your servants. But if I beat him, you've got to be 
my servant. And every day when Goliath would march out, the Israelites would cower back, including Saul, including Eliab, David's older brother. Well, David is sent to take supplies to his brothers who are in Saul's army. And when he hears uh, Goliath's challenge, he's like, why hasn't someone gone out there and accepted it? And so he goes basically and says, Saul, I'm here. I'll be happy to do it. Notice what David says to Saul. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from his mouth. And then look at what he says. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. We don't know how old at this time David is. He's a teenager, probably 17, 18 years old. And yet he tells the story of facing down these wild animals. I mean, can you imagine taking on a lion to the point of where when it turns on you, you grab it by the hair and you kill it? He goes on to say, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. I mean, David was one who ever since his earliest remembrances had trusted in God. I mean, when you go and you read the, the Psalms, I think of Psalms 23. I don't know when David wrote it. I think he wrote it quite early. And it's a psalm of incredible trust. The Lord is my shepherd. That's what faith is all about. And so the first characteristic of someone who's going to have the heart of God is that they've got to have this faith. That, you know what? God can do whatever he calls us to do through his power working in our lives. A second characteristic of someone after God's own heart is they have hope hearted devotion. One thing I love about David is he didn't ever do anything halfway. I love this passage out of Psalm 86. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all of my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Boy, when I think about that kind of passion, there's a story told in the Old Testament. David had built his palace there in Jerusalem, and he wanted to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Now, in his first attempt, he makes a tragic mistake, and a man dies as a result of it. David goes back, and after inquiring what the law said, did it the right way. You see, they had basically ignored what God had commanded when carrying the ark of the covenant. When the ark comes into Jerusalem, David's love for God and passion is shown in such a strange way. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6. And the text says, wearing a linen ephod. Now, an ephod is a priestly garment, but the linen is simply the undergarment portion of it. In other words, he's not dressed like a king. He's dressed like a priest before he puts on his extra robes. He's basically in his undergarments. And the text says, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. 
Here's a guy who is going to give God his everything. I mean, dancing before the Lord with all his might. I remember many, many years ago, I was preaching in a church, and we had a gentleman who had been visiting with us for quite some time. And, and I, he was hard to get a read on. Uh, I could tell that he loved coming to worship, but I could also tell that there was always something between him and the Lord. I remember one Sunday we had offered the invitation. He had not responded. But then during the closing song, I caught someone coming up the aisle out of the corner of my eye, and it was him. And he came up in front of the auditorium and simply got down on his face to the floor and laid out his hands. I'd never witnessed anybody doing it. And I've got to be honest with you, I didn't know what to do. I was standing by an elder. He looked at me. I looked at him. You know, afterwards, the closing prayer, you know, our, our worship leader spoke to him. He got up and never said another word. He would do that several times. And I remember when he was finally baptized, the joy he had after his baptism, he literally leapt for joy. And when he came out of the baptistry, he was running down the aisle, leaping and throwing his fist in the air. I mean, here was someone who loved God with all of his heart. And oftentimes I envy people like that. So let me ask you a question. Are you devoted to God wholeheartedly like David was? The third characteristic we see is he was a person of incredible conscience. You know, David was one who took living before God so seriously. You know, after he was anointed king, later Saul would come to understand that David was the one chosen to, to replace him. And Saul would literally carry out a campaign of trying to kill David. He had heard one time that David was in the desert part of southern Judah around the Dead Sea. And there's a set of springs there called En Gedi. And he had heard David was there and he took a, quite a large army down to go and try to capture him. When Saul got down into the region, he needed to go to the bathroom. And so he went into a cave, which was very common back then. Unknown to him, in the back of the cave was David and, and his men. And when he saw Saul come in to relieve himself, the text says, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. You see, his men were telling him, Here's your chance. You can strike Saul down right now. And, Dad said, and David said, No, I'm not going to do it. He's the Lord's anointed. He was a man with incredible conviction. And even though Saul was out to kill him, he wasn't willing to return the favor. And then this fourth quality, which is probably the most important of all, is one that I think all of us have to ask ourselves, how do we line up? And that is, David was a person of incredible integrity. You know, what is integrity? Integrity, I, I guess the best way I know to describe it is, you are what people see, whether they see you or not. 
Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 78. God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel in his heritance. And then verse 72, And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. Led them. Now, I know what you're thinking. Integrity of heart. Wasn't this David the same one that committed sin with Bathsheba? Who basically had her husband Uriah killed? Who lied? Who deceived? I mean, didn't David have a very dark side to him? And the answer to that question is, for a brief moment, the answer is yes. But you know, even during that time, you pick up some of the integrity of David. You know, if David teaches us anything, it's to say, oh, I'll never be guilty of doing this, or I'll never be guilty of that. If a man after God's own heart could fall, so could all of us. But what I, I love about the Psalms is they give us insight even into this part of David's life. You know, David quickly come, came to realize what he had done against God. But he found himself stuck. You see, David had committed the sin of adultery. And in the law of Moses, that's punishable by death. And, and, and so if it's carried out, both he and Bathsheba would be executed. And so David found himself wanting, wanting to honor God. But knowing that if he did, the law demanded that he die. Look at some of the texts that describe this period of his life. This is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. David is able to literally write about it. He says, you know what? I had to go through a period of deceit in my life. He would go on in verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I don't know about you, but uh, this past week we've had some hot days. And boy, you very quickly realize just how in a hot day you just really get tired quickly. That's the way David described his relationship with God. Earlier in this psalm, Psalm 6, he would say, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Why? Because he's wanting to come back. His integrity won't let him just stay away from God. And yet he doesn't know how. God would eventually send Nathan to him. It would be over a period of nine months. In fact, the child that Bathsheba became pregnant with would eventually be born. And then Nathan would come to him, tell him a story, a story that would convict him. And when David said that whoever had committed this act is worthy of death, Nathan would look at him and say, you're the man. I want you to notice how David responded. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. That's all he could say. You know, when Samuel confronted Saul, Saul lied about it. You know, it wasn't me that sinned against God. It was my army that sinned against God. 
But David didn't blame anyone. He took the responsibility. You see, he loved God. And even though he had sinned grievously against God, he still wanted to honor him. And so he confesses it freely. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's response was, the Lord has taken away your sin. You, you're not going to die. That which had caused David to, you know, struggle to repent. Finally, God lifts it and says, you're not going to die. Psalm 32, such a beautiful text. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Honesty. Integrity. I don't know about you, but these four characteristics are so important. That, that role of faith, of trusting in God, that incredible passion that, you know, puts your whole heart into your relationship. And then the ability to acknowledge sin when, when you've committed it. I mean, that's what it means to have a heart that is the heart of God. And I think it's for that reason that Matthew could begin his gospel in such a powerful way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And can I just tell you, he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. What an honor to be described that way. And so I hope that this week, as we focus on 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14, and this Davidic covenant, that we realize, you know what? David set an example for us, much like Jesus did. And I hope that we can learn to be people that one day somebody will say about you as well as about me. He was a man. He was a woman after God's own heart. You know, if you have any needs, please don't hesitate to call me. Uh, you, can, you can text me if you'd like to. Uh, my email is lastchapman13 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. God bless you this week. May you live a life that honors him with a heart that's like his. God bless you.